So completing this month's sort of series of looking at facilitating happiness, I've actually been looking forward to this this interview because I think it's going to provide really great perspective on sort of that happiness question. We're joined by therapist Megan Bruneau this week. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me, Andrew. So when you think from a clinical perspective, and then we'll, we'll go back and talk a little bit more about what it means to be in, in therapy, but from a clinical perspective, when someone comes and says, I'm not happy, what is that? What, where do you usually start with? What does that mean for you? Well, for me, it's usually it, that begins the journey in understanding what it means for them, really. You know, um, I mean, happiness is such an interesting concept, right? Because it's so subjective and we try to quantify it. But, you know, how do you really quantify one person's subjective experience in comparison to another? So for me, like a lot of the conversation from there will go toward, okay, well, what does happiness look like for you? You know, how would you know if you were happier? What would be different in your life? What would people notice in you? What would you notice in yourself? And also kind of like a past history, like was there a time where you did experience happiness and what did that look like? Just to get a bit more information about what what they mean by like, I'm not happy. So uh, so it's not so much that like someone telling me they're not happy means something specific to me other than, okay, well, this is like the first um piece of information to be able to open up some more questions around like what their experience of unhappiness is and what their experience of happiness is. So we can move them closer toward what they imagine happiness would be if that's realistic. Is there like a clinical diagnosis for being unhappy? Um, well, look, I mean, okay, so I, I'll, I'll preface this with saying that as a, um, a therapist with a master's in, in psychology, I'm not actually allowed to diagnose, but I mean, you that it could be either somebody struggling with depression or something called dysthymia is like, you know, a, a milder version of that. And there are various different, you know, forms of depression and whatnot. Um, but, I, you know, to be honest, I don't, I stay away from labels as much as possible because I think everything is like on such a spectrum. And I really think a lot of the time with these diagnostic labels, what we're doing is we're really situating um, quote unquote mental illness, which I don't usually use that term either within the individual as opposed to the system, which, you know, largely a lot of our unhappiness or dissatisfaction is a result of, you know, as a result of our isolation and disconnection and being overworked and, you know, undernourished and sedentary and underslept and, um, you know, on screens all day and not having meaningful jobs and, you know, being really hard on ourselves and having past traumas and, you know, the list goes on and whatnot, right? So, so but all of those things are more products of our, our lifestyles in the system uh, versus this like individual pathology. So just to answer your question in a very long way, um, I wouldn't like for me, I wouldn't associate someone's dissatisfaction or unhappiness with a clinical diagnosis. My work is really more about trying to truly deeply understand their experience and then help them um, move closer toward, you know, their desired experience or their desired reality. So now we've got sort of the apply, like just basic, I feel like any talking to any sort of mental uh, professional, I guess you try to stay from mental illness, but I guess mental health professional, uh, it's staying away. Everyone's going to ask like, okay, well, what is it? I'm not happy. And then figuring that out. But what does it actually mean for someone that may be listening has never been to therapy? I myself have been in and out of it. Uh, but what does it actually mean when someone says I'm going to therapy? What does that mean? So therapy, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's so, it, there are so many different 
variations and versions and situations in which a person would go to therapy. And I often will try to simplify it by saying people come to therapy wanting to make a choice or a change or um, they want support. They want like the confidential, non-judgmental, like somewhat objective because I don't believe we can, anyone can actually be truly objective, but like more objective than someone who might already be in their life. Um, that container and that space to process, to consult, to be supported with someone who has, you know, some a professional basically who has some insight perhaps, or should have some insight into uh, what they might be going through. So, so, you know, I mean, I've, I've had tons of therapy and, you know, continue to see, see therapists and everything like that. And so, you know, it, sometimes a client will come in because they're like, you know, I have this, this, this big thing in my life that I want to work through or this choice that I have to make. Other times they might come in because they're like, yeah, I'm not happy or I'm struggling with anxiety or, you know, I'm going through this breakup or, um, you know, this eating disorder or this addiction or something along those lines. And then other times, you know, I have clients that I've seen for years who they just really value the safety of the space. And depending on, um, Depending on your uh, beliefs as a therapist, some therapists are much more short term and they don't really believe in long term therapy. In my opinion, and in the way that I work, I think that actually like that um, it's oftentimes a lot of like the deep, deep work, like the healing attachment work and the trauma processing and stuff like that doesn't actually happen or begin to happen until, you know, you've been seeing someone for quite a, some time. So I am very much of the belief that, you know, people can come into therapy for all different sorts of things. And really like my job is to just be this like compassionate, non-judgmental consultant and offer like a reparenting experience in some ways. And we also like what a lot of people don't get about therapy is they think it's about uh, the, the content. Like they think it's just about what gets said in the room. And that's why oftentimes people are like, well, I'll just like read a self-help book or I'll talk to my friends or whatever. But it's not just about that. It's also about, um, the relationship itself and, you know, a person learning how to heal what we call relational trauma, um, through the process of like a healthy, um, consistent, safe, compassionate relationship where they can kind of learn how to trust again and how to learn how to be in relationship to another human without it evoking the same kinds of like trauma responses they might have as a result of their past. So that was like a really long explanation. I hope that made sense. No, I mean, that's perfect. I mean, I think that sort of encapsulates the whole therapy experience, uh, sort of in the whole, that's actually a better way than I've ever been able to describe it. Coming, coming from the one side, right, it's you would think, and I've often felt this own guilt of myself being in therapy that it's a profession in which you just sort of hear everyone's problems all day. I know it's more applied than that about things that people are working on, but mm -hmm. it's not exactly light stuff that you're generally participating in. I mean, how does that, how does that impact you? Or I mean, or I guess even to back it up, like what, what caused you to want to get interested in going into therapy? Cause it does seem like it would be a, something that you have to be mentally prepared for. Totally. Um, you know, it's interesting. I hear that a lot from people and I think obviously there are people for whom the profession maybe isn't like a right fit. I think if you grew up with any kind of like what we call parentification, um, where maybe you ended up kind of like taking care of a parent in some way emotionally or, or physically. Um, and that was my experience. Um, you know, you, you learn, uh, that 
love equals caring for people, right? Or helping people. And that has all sorts of problems attached to it, especially when it comes to dating, which is like part of my life right now. I'm like, how do I, how do I love without caring for someone like, or without being, you know, they're trying to help them and fix them and stuff like that. But, um, but the, the, the pro or the, the positive thing that comes out of that is that for me, um, helping and like, you know, being someone's, someone's, uh, I don't know, like consultant and support and um, having the privilege and the honor of like sort of standing beside them with this like flashlight and helping them go into the dark corners of their life is like deeply, deeply meaningful and fulfilling. And, um, and, you know, I think, well, I, I know that meaning is so important in our lives for our own happiness. So for me, it's actually, um, because of the population that I work with, it's actually incredibly fulfilling. And I just like have so much perspective through the work. I mean, you know, I could be sitting there like having a bad day thinking about, I don't know, some, something relative, fairly inconsequential. Right. And then I, I speak to my like courageous clients and hear their stories and like what they're going through and the resilience. And I'm just like so humbled. And so so I think like, you know, of course, it's really important to take care of yourself. And I've gotten to a point because I've been doing it for a while now. And because I do have a private practice that I'm able to like set boundaries and I'm able to know when I'm starting to move toward what we call compassion fatigue or when I'm kind of burning out. I practice a ton of self-care. You know, I obviously get my own um, therapy and then also just like do a lot for my well-being to to make sure that I'm in a good place uh, mentally and emotionally for my clients. But it's never, um, you know, even when I like was working with more vulnerable populations or, you know, working on like the suicide crisis line and stuff like that, um, it, yes, it can be more tiring, but at the end of the day, you have human, you're experiencing human connection all day and deep, true, intimate human connection that I think we are seeing less and less of with social media and, you know, the way that we've lived our lives these days and our very like individualistic culture, that values like independence and, you know, living by yourself and stuff like that. Uh, so, so I actually have never experienced the kind of, um, I don't know, um, sort of feeling, feeling just like you're taking on everyone else's problems and don't have enough help yourself. Um, because I, I think I've been able to maintain a nice balance, but I, I do know that like, depending on the population you're working with, like, obviously if, if you're working with a population where you don't get to actually see the change or there's a lot of resistance in coming to therapy, you're working with like a population that's been mandated, you know, um, like prison populations and stuff like that, or, um, with a lot of addictions and there's a lot of resistance, or you're just having like a real, like cycling through and you're only seeing clients once or twice and not able to see the improvement or form a relationship. I think it's a lot more, um, exhausting and less fulfilling. I'm thinking about the different populations that you've worked with and just the the way that you've talked about how you have to take care of yourself. How do you how do you rec- how do you recognize that when you've when you sort of reach your limit? You've mentioned when you start to burn out or you yeah. have what's called compassion to fatigue. A lot of people inadvertently end up experiencing that because maybe they are helping someone in, in their life going through a tough time. How do you recognize when you've sort of reached that limit and know that you need to recycle? So for me, it's very obvious. Like I will notice that in session um, with a client, I'll start feeling kind of frustrated or ready for the session to be over, you know, and, and that of course like happens it does happen. Like even when I am feeling, feeling good, like occasionally, but it's like something that feels more consistent and I'm self-aware enough and self-awareness is a very important part of being a therapist. I'm self-aware enough in the moment to be able to recognize like, Ooh, like 
I'm, this person is telling me like, you know, I, here I am having like the privilege of being privy to this person's intimate details of their life. And like, they're not only sharing this with me, but they're also paying me, you know, and, and I'm not showing up. Like I am not being the the therapist or the clinician that I think I, I need to be. And so I'll start to notice that like my, my, all my skills will start slipping. I'll start feeling fatigued in session. I'll start feeling kind of resentful or um, like kind of anxious for it to be over. And I just will start to lose like my empathy or I'll feel kind of frustrated or I'll have moments where I'm like, like, you know, judgmental or I'm like, oh, like that's like not a big deal, you know, or I have like a, a thought like that. And that is not me. Like that is not my ethos with this profession. I, I really don't think you can quantify suffering. And I think, you know, everyone is deserving of compassion if they're going through pain, because again, you can't again, it's subjective. So, so for me, it's a like in session, I'll notice that. And, uh, and then of course, like I can also just look at, I, I, I do a weekly check-in with a, a girlfriend who, you know, is a, an entrepreneur in a different space and we journal back and forth with each other and we journal on our like professional work and our personal lives. And it's really, it's really helpful for me because, you know, even on those weeks where it's go, 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 it's like, okay, every Monday I'm going to sit down, I'm going to send my email to Geisha, like, and I have to look at, I have to assess everything and be like, how am I feeling? How am I feeling in my areas of like, you know, work and dating and my family and, you know, whatever else might be going on. And then what does my schedule look like? And what are my tasks for this week? And I'm trying to actually cut down my caseload right now so that I can make room for, um, you know, speaking and writing and, and, you know, social media and other things that I want to put more effort into, but haven't really had time to because of my caseload. So I can also then look and be like, oh, interesting. You know, I had, you know, 18 clients this week. That's way more than I want to be having. You know, I want to be under like, be around like 10 is like a sweet spot for me at this point. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, I'd say those are kind of like the major things for me. And then for me also, like, I just, I really need to make sure that like I have time for self-care and I'm super lucky that I can do that. Like not everyone has that privilege. I have like a nothing before 10 AM rule where I don't take meetings before 10 AM where, cause I'm not a very good sleeper. Um, you know, I get a lot of like massage, I get acupuncture, I go to yoga, I have a dance class that I go to like almost every day. I play soccer. Um, you know, I go for a lot of walks. I listen to music. Like I, um, you know, I have time to like write and reflect and whatnot. And so I have like a very, um, rich, uh, self-care routine and see my therapist, of course, um, that allows for me to, uh, really like prevent, I think any of that burnout or compassion fatigue that might be on the horizon. It's so interesting because when you are in, for those that are listening that haven't been in therapy before, but when you're in it, it is sort of, at least I've thought that the therapist you sort of think like knows everything and is perfect and never has any issues. So it's interesting to hear about monitoring and knowing that that's not true, but it's sort of like asking the computer to answer your question because you just feel like they're the authority in there. I mean, do you, what what happens when you're a therapist and you're unhappy or you're depressed? Totally. Well, you know, it's, it's such, such, that's such a um, powerful point, Andrew, because, you know, I think a lot of times what people don't realize is that most therapists become therapists because we're suffering. You know, like most of us, we, we know we are the compassionate humans we are because we know suffering and you have to know suffering to have compassion. And, you know, oftentimes, again, yes, we maybe grew up in situations that weren't ideal and we took care of, of a parent that wasn't able to always be there for us or something along those lines. Or, you know, we became interested in psychology because we went through our own trauma or had our own like addiction or struggling or some struggle, excuse me, or something along those lines. 
it's it's kind of similar actually to how I, I often speak about spirituality because people always think like, oh, this person's so spiritual. They must be like so happy and blissful and like liberated and enlightened. And it's like, no, no, there's a selection bias here. Like whether it's spirituality or whether it's therapy or self-help for that matter, we go toward these things, you know, these professions, these these interest areas because we are suffering. Like we, we, we want to try to understand something so that we can um, alleviate or cease that suffering or find happiness or whatever. So it, there are, there's a lot of, um, you know, mental health challenges among therapists and, and many therapists, just like, you know, many humans, but many therapists in particular have struggled with or continue to struggle with some kind of mental health challenge. And I know for me, I mean, I struggled with eating disorders for many years. I struggled with depression and anxiety. And, you know, even still, I certainly have like my, I still continue to get to know my relationship to like shame, chronic shame and anxiety. And I've done so much work on myself. And I really do believe like the person I was, you know, eight or 10 years ago in comparison to who I am now are completely different people. And I do believe I am truly happy at this point for the most part, but it's taken a lot of work and my, um, my uh, work was inspired by by pain, of course. So uh, again, just coming back to like your point around, okay, well, like you think therapists, like they know everything and they must be happy. It's like, yeah, we have a lot of a lot of knowledge and we teach what we know and we have a lot of compassion because of what we've been through and whatnot, but it's still a journey for everyone. And I think happiness is a constant. It's not about, it's not like you reach this fixed state of happiness and you stay there. It's all about awareness. It's all about being like, okay, how how, how can I become that much more aware moment to moment of my like, thoughts and feelings and bodily experience and like my tendencies to avoid discomfort by doing certain things that might actually make me feel even worse. And how can I, what tools do I need such as like, you know, self-compassion or emotional tolerance and stuff like that to be able to be with the discomfort long enough to choose something more serving for me. And we can like get more into the nuances of that if you want to, but uh, a therapist, it's not like a therapist sits there and gives you all the answers. Like you don't want that anyway, because ultimately you, you want to be able to find those within yourself and be resourced enough to not need them per se, or at least like continue to see them out of just the desire for that, that space, that container for processing. But what a therapist can do is they can help you help provide the safe space for you to start to come to those, some of those places of awareness yourself and through their like clinical knowledge and experience and, and, um, you know, awareness and everything like that, help you, uh, start to like notice certain patterns and just gain like the self-awareness and the skills and the tools needed to be able to, um, you know, sort of swim without them, swim throughout the waves without them instead of needing them as like the life jacket or whatever. The one thing that stuck out to you is that to me when listening to you is that you mentioned that you weren't happy for a long period of time and that now you can say that you are truly happy. And so while I found everything else incredibly interesting, thank you. How did you know, how did you know when you could differentiate the two? when you knew that you were happy. Yeah, it's so it's interesting because I was actually um I I was reminded of this speaking to a client yesterday. Um I remember uh I, it wasn't until I was probably like 25 maybe and I'd done like you know I'd gone through like a massive heartbreak and I'd hit rock bottom with my eating disorder and I'd found yoga and Buddhism and like you know it started to really like put into practice actually some of the stuff that I'd learned, you know, I would ironically just finished seven years of education in psychology, you know, and like, it wasn't until actually after that. And I was sort of thrown, I was thrown so far out of my comfort zone and I had to learn how to like, I had to learn how to relate to myself and my emotions in a different way. 
it wasn't until that I went through that experience that I remember, I truly remember this moment where I was like, what is this feeling? Like, and it wasn't, I wouldn't call it happiness. It was more, um, it was like peace. And I was like this, or no, it was, I call it calm. I remember being like, wow, like this is what calm is. Like there wasn't that like incessant critical voice beating me up. There wasn't that constant sense of anxiety of like guilt, this kind of urgency to be like doing something or being more the shame that's always so present, you know? And so I remember having this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what calm feels like. And I think like that was a really defining moment for me and recognizing like shit, like some of this work actually that I've been doing is, is actually starting to stick. And so much of what I help people do is help them realize, um, recognize the way that they treat themselves, their relationship to themselves and their emotions and actually wake up to some of that because so much of it's very unconscious and we don't realize that we like treat ourselves like shit and we're just so hard on ourselves and we beat ourselves up for everything and we have these unrealistic expectations for ourselves and we de- you know define our self-worth or attach our self-worth to like outcomes and achievements and appearances and things like that and um and and that we don't let ourselves feel our feelings and that when we do feel them if they're uncomfortable we beat ourselves up for them or we numb or suppress them or we avoid them in some way and then we live our lives in a way that we try to avoid any opportunity for rejection or hurt or sadness or loneliness or shame or guilt etc cetera, etc cetera. and as a result we live in like these very small boxes and and are stifled and aren't able to be like aligned with the life that we really want to live so what i help people do is learn how like through that process of like being incredibly hard on themselves and really like perfectionism is is the label associated with all of this with through the process of perfectionism, they're actually creating anxiety. They're actually creating depression. They're creating addictions and they're holding themselves back from like connection to others, connection to themselves, alignment with like whatever their, their purpose might be, you know, going after their dreams and meaningful um, existence, a sense of belonging and relevance and significance and stuff like that. So I'm, So for me, it it was really interesting to notice that all of this work I'd been doing, trying to learn how to like, as cheesy as it sounds, love myself or coach myself or like actually show up for myself, support myself, not abandon myself when I was suffering through that process, I, I started to notice like, this is so interesting. Now, when I, when I fail or when I'm hurting or when I fuck up, instead of like berating myself, I'm actually like, you know, I'm still kind of like acknowledging that it's not something I, I want to do again, or I, I want to acknowledge the air and learn from it and whatnot. There's more of this like coach like voice. And there's this experience and this permission to be an imperfect human being. So like that was really huge. And then the other thing um, I think that that's important to acknowledge is, you know, through studying Buddhism, um, I, I began to realize like, oh, you know, uh, so so much of what we're fed, you know, through marketing and social media and just like society, the narratives that exist in our society suggest that you're supposed to be happy all the time and that life is supposed to look a certain way and it's supposed to be linear and not messy and you're never supposed to screw up. And so we all have these expectations, not only on ourselves for our performance, but also on like what life looks like. And as a result, we feel resentful. You know, we feel like we're failing. We feel like we've been dealt a bad hand. And so recognizing like, no, actually life is full of pain. And that's the one thing that unites us is our difficult emotions, you know, anxiety and sadness and loneliness and hurt and rejection and grief and all of these emotions that we're going to feel, you know, until the day we die, because that's what it is to be human, not chronically, you know, they come and go, but we basically go through waves of, of happiness and joy. And then another wave of, 
sadness and loneliness or grief or whatever. And so for me, sort of reconceptualizing or, or understanding my reality as more like contentedness versus happiness or contentment versus happiness, where it, under the umbrella of contentment and peace, there's room for hard days and, you know, hard years and, you know, moments of pain. And then there's also room for like joy alongside that. So that making that shift as well uh, really helped me change my perspective to be like, no, like I am deeply content. You know, I have deeply fulfilling relationships and work and all sorts of other things that bring me joy. And within that contentment, there's also room for pain and hard things. For me, even in myself, I found out that the parabola is a thing that exists and it's about figuring out how to make maybe the shifts, the, the bad days not be as bad, you know, sort of making them bearable and the good days. Similarly, I've found the good days making, it's great to have a really good day, but if you find that you're of like often oscillating between the two it's just as bad um as if you were just having nothing but bad days at least for sort of for me personally totally yeah a lot of people um are very feel very vulnerable and anxious when they have a good day because they're like when's the other shoe going to drop i can't let myself feel happy because if i let myself feel happy something bad's going to happen and what i try to help people understand is like well, no, something bad's going to happen anyway. Like let yourself feel happy because regardless as to whether or not you try to push away this happiness or deny it, the tide will shift. And yeah, like you're going to have some disappointment and that's what life is. And then, you know, you'll find meaning in that. And, you know, you'll, then you'll have like another good moment or another good day or whatever. And our job as humans is to try to, at least in my opinion, or, you know, alongside sort of a more spiritual framework, our job is to try to learn how to maintain what we call equanimity, which is the sort of like, non-reactivity or learning how to observe and observe the roller coaster, I guess you could say, and not be swept away with like the peaks and valleys and be able to just be like, okay, yes, you're it's a bad day or a bad feeling right now. You can make it worse by judging yourself. You can make it worse by trying to push it away. You can make it worse by not um, giving yourself care and love and like support or whatever else that you need. And also like sometimes like we just have to make space for the mess or the shit. I mean, you know, like heartbreak and and loss and disappointment and frustration like those are just normal aspects of life and so we can make them worse or we can we can make space for them and and trust that they'll come and go similarly i mean you yourself grew up in british columbia in canada and you now live in new york how does your environment impact how you may perceive your day to day. I mean, just looking generally, the UN's happiness report, right, lists the US at 19 and Canada's at nine. Uh, speaking from your <laughs> own, <laughs> speaking from your own. And yet I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, yeah. I mean, do you, have you noticed a difference or like how much totally. does your environment change the way that you sort of perceive those things on a day to day basis? Well, I mean, gosh, that's like, I'm sure we could jam out for like oh, I'm sure. hours on, on all the, all the, um, hypothetical uh contributors or factors within that and again you know how do we define and measure happiness right but um but you know i would say first of all um obviously there's like a social aspect here in terms of like look like canada is a farmer socialist country and we have a lot more you know we have universal health care you know like we have our our um you know disparity between the rich and the poor is is, is you know still significant but it's not it's not the same as, as the States. Right. So that alone, just in terms of people's like, you know, um, access to, to health and mental health, um, you know, that's going to impact happiness 
significantly. Um, you know, same thing with oppression. I mean, this is this is all coming out of oppression anyway, but you know, various different forms of oppression in terms of like racism and classism and sexism and you know ableism and you know all the things that fall into the various different um, layers of oppression that people experience. I mean, those those things alone are incredibly impactful in a person's mental health. And that's why like, it's really important, I think, as clinicians, and this is more of like a social justice, social work perspective, but I think like, you know, all therapists and, and unfortunately coaches don't really receive the same kind of training, but I think all people who are advocating for happiness, um, it is, I think, like unethical to not acknowledge the privilege piece. I mean, yeah, of course I can achieve happiness being like a white, straight, able-bodied, you know, thin privileged woman who comes from a, you know, a highly educated family, has a high, you know, graduate education herself and is able to charge a lot per hour so that she can then go get her massages and, you know, go see her therapist and stuff like that. So I just want to name that because I think it's incredibly important. Um, In addition to that though, Yes, of course. I mean, like, I know when I go, I was just in, I was just uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan for to give to give a talk. And, you know, it's like I, I had like an hour that I could just get outside and go for a walk. And so I like go outside and go for a walk. And I walk past like a lawn, like real grass, a lawn that I can smell and like see and it's bright. And it's like, oh, my God, my eyes, you know, like you don't see that in New York. Right. So like they, just even something like nature. I mean, this hugely we, we have studies to support this. Nature is hugely important for a person's well-being. And so whereas some people like thrive in a place like New York, and I, I think I am one of those people due to just like my extroversion and, you know, appreciation for kind of like chaos in a way or my comfort in chaos. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, th- this would be not be a, a mentally healthy environment for them because they need like a quieter environment with like let more peace. And, you know, I think there's studies to support that even when a person doesn't feel stressed in a really like loud environment, there's still, there still are signs that like their cortisol is spiking and whatnot. So like, you're always hearing sirens, like there's always noise, there's jackhammers, like, you know, and so, um, so, so like that, those couple of things alone, but then also like, I think social connection is huge. It's like such an important part of happiness, really like when I'm kind of like assessing a person's, um, unhappiness in the room the the immediate things that I go toward are social connection like how are they feeling and do they feel like they belong they belong basically in any sense like do they have if they're not close with their family do they have like a true deep community of like friends and if they don't actually feel connected or a sense of community in any way um that in, like inevitably leads to a sense of disconnection loneliness shame and that all fuels depression and anxiety and stuff like that so that can be huge so so a huge part of therapy is really helping a person feel more connected and sometimes get past some of their barriers to intimacy that are preventing them from connecting to others because they may have learned that um, intimacy was not safe and they couldn't uh, they couldn't ask for help or they couldn't help others or they couldn't get too close because they would end up getting hurt. So a lot of uh, the therapy work is not just helping a person like develop a sense of like community or even just like one or two friends. It's also helping them realize like how they might be sabotaging those friendships or connections or not being like not allowing themselves to be vulnerable out of a place of safety, but it's getting in the way of them feeling um, connected and seen and like, you know, what we really need that like, you know, juicy, like rich connection to be able to um, feel good. And that's like what increases oxytocin and like helps us like kind of move into that tend and befriend state versus fight or flight. So like, that's a huge piece. The second piece that I'll look at is uh, meaning. So, you know, if a person's oftentimes I come in and, and, or sorry, excuse me, someone comes in and they're like, I'm depressed and they tell me about their life. 
and they tell me their situation and they talk about their job that they hate, that they're working, you know, 10, 11 hours at a day. And I'm like, well, of course you're depressed. You know, like the depression is there as a signal. It's there to tell you something. It's there telling you that you're not living your life, like aligned with the purpose that you want to live. You know, you're telling me all these things about your values and you're working in a job that really does not align with that. And that doesn't feel good for you. And you're not getting any like positive reinforcement in. And the list may go on as to all the reasons as to why so many jobs, especially here in New York, are not conducive to mental health. Um, so I'll look at that and try to understand like, okay, all right, do you have a sense of meaning? I mean, for me personally, I'm super fortunate. I get deep meaning out of my work. Um, you know, if a person is in a situation where, again, they don't have the same kind of privilege that I do and they have to work a job that they don't love because that's the way they're going to survive and support their family, it might be about helping them understand, okay, where are you deriving a sense of meaning and belonging and, and how, you know, and if it's not like you can have the time to volunteer or something like that for some cause that you believe in, are there places for like creativity or connection or like through your family? you know, getting meaning there or, you know, just helping them try to understand places where they can feel a sense of purpose. And then I look at relationship to self. So how is a person relating to themselves and their emotions? You know, are they relating to themselves with criticism and judgment and shaming and, um, you know, unrealistically high expectations that are inflexible? And then from there, like, I try to help them shift that relationship. And it can be challenging because sometimes, I mean, really, we internalize a critical voice, usually from what we grew up with, or just society in general, because, you know, it wants to tell you you're not good enough, so you buy things. Um, but I basically help them try to understand that critical voice, see where it's serving them, where it's not, and try to change that voice to one that still has high expectations and wants growth, but is more compassionate, more like coach-like, more encouraging, more accepting of like their humanness. And so we work towards that and then the other piece that I think is is important still to acknowledge is that sometimes this stuff isn't all in your head you know like oftentimes a person is deficient in a certain nutrient our thyroid really impacts our mental health so a lot of people um, especially nowadays are have thyroid or autoimmune conditions that impact their their um, mood you know oftentimes an overactive thyroid can cause anxiety underactive can cause depression so things like that line like there's all sorts of different challenges um, hormonal challenges like Women, you know, if you have a hormonal imbalance a lot of the time or men, if they are, you know, have too low or too high of testosterone, that's going to influence mood. So there's more like I often encourage people to go to a functional medicine doctor as well or a naturopath because it's not just about what's in your head. People are always like, no, just be more positive, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, no, no, there's like other stuff that's going on in our body that's going to cause depression as well. And that's a great, I mean, we're almost at time, but I do want to, I did want to end with this, these, well, two things, but that it's a great segue into if someone was feeling like they needed to go to talk to somebody, you know, how does, how does one go about doing that? How does one go about finding a therapist or finding a way into therapy or into some kind of you know, something to help them? Yeah, it's, well, it, it depends on their situation, their financial situation, you know, their benefits and stuff like that. Like oftentimes, um, Oftentimes, like there will be uh, like an employee assistance program type thing for people where they already have a therapist like or a therapist network situated within their health benefits that works with their their um, health insurance providers. So, uh, you know, if they have that option, I'll encourage them to go there first because, you know, that's um, covered and whatnot. Um, if not, if you're just looking like out of 
pocket or you or you're just looking to um for someone who might be like in network or whatever there are various different platforms that you can go to for that there's also different um like i i something like psychologytoday.com has like a great database of therapists that you could just look up and through that and i often refer people to that i think still word of mouth is the best referral like if you know anyone or if you feel comfortable like obviously obviously it's like still there's a lot of stigma but you know if you feel comfortable doing so like asking your friend network, you know, or asking colleagues or, you know, like throwing it on your Facebook or whatever. Does anyone have like a coach or therapist they recommend, you know, you could even be like asking for a friend. Right. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that and asking for word of mouth, then I do actually think like psychology today is great. There are also a lot of platforms, um, like better help and talk space and, uh, a new one in, in Canada, at least it's called Inkblot. Um, there are a bunch of different uh, platforms that you can go on that uh, will connect you with a therapist. And also like, feel free to ask for a consultation. Like lot, like like you can, if you reach out to somebody and you're not sure if you want to work with them or not, instead of like shelling over whatever the cost might be without knowing whether or not it's a fit, ha- like ask to have a phone call and you can connect. And, and, you know, I've done that with all my therapists and people do it with me all the time. And sometimes they want to work with me and sometimes they don't. And so it's a, it's a really natural, I think, um, part of the process. And that way you can tell whether or not you vibe with that person, because it really is the most important part. The most important part of the therapy, uh, work is the relationship with your therapist. I, I will second the psychology today. That is how I found my current therapist through there as well. But that, no, I think that's that's super helpful. Megan, this has been a really insightful conversation. I have very much enjoyed hearing about the other side of what it is like to go to therapy. If What's the, the – I'll get to the promo in a second. But it, usually on the show, we'll ask our guests to have – if they have a recommendation on something that someone – that something that someone could do in the next week that might make their week a little bit better or a little bit happier. I know I'm sort of putting you on the spot, but is there anything that you would have as a recommendation? I think, you know, I, I'm very much like aligned with Brene Brown in the the belief that shame, I think, is really at the, the root of so much of our, our pain. And I guess um, my like challenge for people or my encouragement encouragement is that is that a noun um, my 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 advice whatever for people would be to uh try to reach out and connect to someone like not superficially you know it's not like on an instagram comment you know and and te- look text is fine like i think that actually i mean obviously in person is best in terms of connection but if for you you don't feel like you're at that place yet and that just feels too overwhelming like send someone an email send someone a text try to connect with someone in a way that um you know, maybe feels a little uncomfortable because you might be going to a place that kind of scares you, you know, but ultimately through that vulnerability as the way, you know, Brene Brown describes it, that's how we experience connection. And that's what shuts down shame. So most of us are dealing with shame in some way, because, you know, whether or not we grew up with, uh, you know, criticism or neglect or whatever, or we're just products of society, a society that constantly tells us we're not good enough and we need to change and do better and we're failing and we're not enough and we're not thin enough and we're not attractive enough and we're not successful enough and we're not rich enough and, you know, we're not self-aware enough and et cetera, et cetera. Um, that all, every time we feel like we're not enough, we're feeling shame. And so when we connect with someone, 
in like a true authentic way, the message that we get either sometimes explicitly, but mostly implicitly is like, no, you are enough. You are lovable as you are. You're enough as you are. And there's of course still room for change. There always is. So I guess I encourage people to, to try to connect in some way that feels like authentic and real. That's a great recommendation. Everyone, I think great recommendation. And if people wanted to connect with you, um, how would, how do people find you? How, what's the best way for people to, to read or learn more about what you do in your presence? Yeah. I mean, you can go to my website. It's meganbruno.com, M-E-G-A-N, um, B-R-U-N-E-A-U. I'm like, how do I spell my name? Um, and sorry, I'll say that again. M-E-G-A-N-B-R-U-N-E-A-U. Um, Instagram is kind of where I put most of my thoughts these days. Uh, it's at Megan J. Bruno, the just original Megan Bruno was already taken. Um, and I'm also on like, you know, I'm on Twitter. I have a Facebook page, all those sorts of things. You can shoot me an email, Megan at MeganBruno.com. Um, probably Instagram is the best. Just shoot me a DM. Um, if I don't get back to you, like follow up because it's a bit of a mess in my DMs, but it's, uh, it's, it's over my emails. So, um, so yeah, like reach out, would love to hear from you. Um, and, uh, you know, thoughts and stuff like that. But yeah, I put a lot of stuff out there that I think is, is different from most of the stuff that we see on social and, and read about. So would love to have you in my community. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me, Andrew.